Chapter 5 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history by James Francis Hogan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 5 The Veto of Earl Grey. Earl Grey succeeded Mr. Gladstone as Secretary of State for the Colonies on July the 3rd, 1846, and one of his first official acts was the complete reversal of the policy of his predecessor with respect to the founding of the new colony of North Australia. While still in opposition, he had more than once manifested an unsympathetic attitude towards the experiment that Mr. Gladstone had initiated on the shores of Port Curtis. On the 19th of May, 1846, from his place in the Upper House, he inquired whether any measures had been taken for the establishing of a new colony to be called North Australia. It appeared from the papers before the House that such a colony was to be constituted almost exclusively of persons who had undergone the sentence of transportation and were called emancipists. Lord Littleton, Mr. Gladstone's parliamentary under-secretary, replied that the scheme had already been carried out to a great degree and that all the necessary proceedings, so far as they depended upon Her Majesty's government, had been taken. This new colony was to be a settlement within the boundary of New South Wales in the north of Australia. It was not necessarily to be occupied entirely by emancipists, it was certainly intended to ameliorate the condition of those convicts who had gone through their punishment in Van Diemen's land, where there was now no demand for their labour, and in consequence, many of this unfortunate class were entirely destitute. Those persons would have facilities afforded them of proceeding to the new settlement of North Australia, and it was also intended that facilities should be given to the poorer classes in England to proceed there, as well as to prisoners at Pentonville and Parkhurst. By this means, it was hoped to relieve Van Diemen's Land of its surplus convict population. On the 15th of November, 1846, Earl Grey wrote to Sir Charles Fitzroy, informing him that, on a full review of the subject, Her Majesty's Government had determined to abandon the design entertained by Lord Stanley, and carried into effect by Mr. Gladstone, for establishing in North Australia a colony for the reception of pardoned convicts, who might be unable to find the means of maintaining themselves in Van Diemen's Land. Mr. Grey said he could not conceal from Sir Charles that Her Majesty's present confidential advisers dissented from the view taken on this subject by their immediate predecessors, both in state of reference to the facts under which they acted and the considerations by which they were guided. But he would not enter on a discussion that might assume a controversial aspect and which had become entirely superfluous. Since Mr. Gladstone's decision in the matter was taken, there had been such a change in the condition and circumstances of society in the Australian colonies as would, could it have been foreseen, have doubtless been regarded by the authors of the project as conclusive against its adoption. In making this observation, Earl Grey said he was referring especially to the cessation during the last two years of transportation to Van Diemen's Land. He also had in view the increased and increasing demand for manual labour throughout the Australian colonies, as well as the methods which the new governor of Van Diemen's Land, Sir William Denison had devised for the employment of the convict and emancipated population in that colony, a duty in which he would be aided by his extensive experience acquired in the discharge of analogous duties in the mother country. Under these circumstances, Earl Grey had come to the conclusion that the establishment of the projected colony of North Australia was now an impolitic and needless measure, even if he could acknowledge that it was originally the reverse. Her Majesty had therefore been advised to revoke the letters patent under which North Australia had been created into a separate colony. 
the establishments formed there were immediately to be discontinued. Colonel Barney and the subordinate officers associated with him were to be recalled without delay and employed, as opportunity offered, under the Government of New South Wales. Earl Grey concluded by expressing his personal pleasure in knowledge that to Colonel Barney himself this change of purpose would not be a disappointment, as his engagement to serve in North Australia had been, by his own desire, limited to a period of two years. The officers who had been engaged in the foundation of North Australia would be paid salary for one year, dated from their landing in Sydney. In the first chapter of the second volume descriptive of his colonial policy, published by Bentley in 1853, Earl Grey enters more fully into the reasons that impelled him to reverse the decision of Mr Gladstone in the matter of creating the new colony of North Australia. The plan, he says, which had been determined upon by his predecessor at the colonial office, and in which he did not think it advisable to persevere, was to send a certain number of convicts, emancipated by pardon, by length of service, or as exiles, to form a settlement on a part of the mainland of North Australia which was still unoccupied. It was, in the first instance, to be occupied by exiles from England, who were to be settled on small lots of land, and when, by the assistance of these men, sufficient preparations had been made, convicts from Van Diemen's land, whose sentences had expired, or who had obtained conditional pardons, were to be sent there. To this scheme of Mr. Gladstone's, it appeared to him there were decisive objections. In the first place, if the convicts were sent to a still unoccupied territory, where there were no settlers to employ them, no buildings prepared for their reception, and no roads of any kind, everything being in a state of nature, it was obvious that the expense to be incurred must be very large, as every fresh attempt to form new settlements had clearly demonstrated, and that the whole of the convicts who might remain in the settlement would, for a long time, be entirely dependent upon the imperial government for their support. The necessity of providing for them would not be averted by giving them allotments of land. From these allotments they could not possibly procure a subsistence until much time and labour had been expended in reclaiming and cultivating the land, and in the meantime they must be provided for by the government. They could only cease to be dependent upon the government for their subsistence when, by industry and good management, they were enabled to obtain a living from the soil. It had always been found a difficult and a costly undertaking to establish men who had no capital of their own as settlers on wild land. Even when the experiment was tried with carefully selected labourers from rural districts, it was, therefore, little likely to succeed with emancipated convicts whose habits were almost always improvident, and of whom the greater number knew nothing of agriculture. If it were necessary to provide for these men in the manner proposed by Mr Gladstone, clearly it might be accomplished with infinitely greater facility in Van Diemen's land. There was plenty of good land still belonging to the Crown in that colony, well adapted for the purpose in view, and far more accessible than North Australia. Besides, in Van Diemen's land, there were available for the undertaking all the resources offered by an existing colony and a large government establishment. Roads to new settlements in Van Diemen's land might have been formed by convict labour at a comparatively trifling expense, and no new establishment of police, judges or commissariat, no additional troops, with the barracks and buildings necessary for all these departments of the public service, would have been required. The enormous amount of the charges, which must have been provided for under these heads, if any considerable number of convicts had been settled in North Australia, might be inferred from the heavy expense that had unavoidably accompanied the formation of the penal establishment in Western Australia, although in that colony 
there were considerable resources of all kinds available, and many of the most costly preliminary preparations for taking possession of an unoccupied territory had already been accomplished. But further, the great object in the transportation of offenders was to avoid forming a society mainly composed of those who had been criminals. It was well known how great were the evils produced in the earlier days of New South Wales by the preponderance of the emancipist element in colonial society, but Mr. Gladstone's colony of North Australia would have been a society composed exclusively of men who had suffered punishment for their offences, unless a few free settlers were attracted by the government expenditure. Against these objections, there was to be set but one real advantage that Earl Grey could perceive. Mr. Gladstone intended North Australia to be peopled by emancipists, that is, by convicts of whom the government no longer possessed the legal power of exercising any control, unless they should commit some new offences. Clearly these men would not have remained in the new settlement, but would have crossed the purely imaginary line, separating North Australia from New South Wales, to seek employment in the latter colony, where, no doubt, there would have been ample demand for their labour. But if this was the object of Mr Gladstone's new penal settlement, such, in Earl Grey's opinion, was not a legitimate mode of attaining it. He could not think it right to send the same class of persons, whose direct removal to New South Wales had been abandoned by the Imperial Government, to a new settlement immediately adjoining that colony, where there was nothing to detain them, even for a single day, and from which there was no room to doubt they would immediately retreat to New South Wales. The Sydney Morning Herald, the most influential and uncompromising opponent of the renewal of transportation in any shape or form, rejoiced exceedingly in its editorial columns at Earl Grey's decision to nip the Gladstone colony in the bud. Quote, Seven years ago, it was the lordly will of the powers that were to put down the hateful anomaly of mingling the transportation system with that of colonisation. Their successors, though they could not, for very shame, reverse the decree which had delivered New South Wales from the penal curse, had yet the conscience to wreak it with tenfold violence on the weaker colony of Van Diemen's land. And when at length the cries of that sufferer had extorted a reluctant promise of at least partial deliverance, a new Secretary of State was made the instrument of attempting, under the most specious guise of modification, to revive the abomination in the elder colony. Concurrently with this attempt, a resolution was adopted to form a new penal settlement on our northern frontier. Without waiting to see how the overture to our own part of the territory would be received, Mr. Gladstone, the right honourable successor of my Lord Stanley, at once causes letters patent to be issued for erecting North Australia into a penal settlement, and sends out his officers with all needful instructions and appliances. No sooner, however, have these preliminaries been successfully carried into effect, no sooner has his honour, the superintendent of North Australia, set foot upon the soil placed under his charge, no sooner has a steamer been purchased and a ship chartered for the conveyance to its stores of civil officers, troops, convicts and supplies, no sooner have the anti-transportationists amongst ourselves deplored these tokens of mischievous earnestness, whilst the opposite party have exulted in the brightening prospect of a stream of felons from the north, no sooner has all this happened than another change takes place in the ministry, and the whole scheme is dashed to pieces. The letters patent are revoked, the appointments are cancelled, and the nascent establishment ordered to be broken up. This, we joyfully admit, 
is one of the few instances in which the ministerial wheel has turned for the better. It is a blessed turn. But who shall say for how long its blessedness will last? Should the general election of the present year return a House of Commons unfavourable to the Russell Cabinet, another revolution amongst placemen may undo all we are now exulting in. The orders of Earl Grey may be as summarily set aside as those of Mr. Gladstone have been. There is something rotten in the state of Downing Street. We can place no dependence upon it. But whilst there is reason for our doubts, there is also reason to hope. In the present distracted state of parties, the ministry of Lord John Russell is more likely to stand than to fall. Earl Grey is more likely to keep the colonial seals than to have them plucked out of his hands, and without adverting to the general policy of those half-liberal, half-conservative statesmen, we have at least the consolation of knowing that, on the penal discipline question, they are the true friends of our adopted country. There is no chance, so long as they remain at the helm, of all the jails and hulks of the United Kingdom disgorging their contents upon our sheepwalks. And even should the worst come to the worst, and the Russell Ministry be displaced by one predisposed to revert to Mr. Gladstone's projects, we should still have hope, and stout hope too, that the numerous petitions that have gone home, testifying the abhorrence in which these projects are held by the great bulk of the colonists, would avert the calamity. At any rate, the colonists have done their duty, and, though it is not for them to command success, they have deserved it. End quote. When the bill of expenses in connection with the establishment and abandonment of the short-lived Gladstone colony was sent to Downing Street, Earl Grey elevated his eyebrows and promptly penned a dispatch to Sir Charles Fitzroy, censuring him for not having exercised a more economical supervision of the affairs and arrangements of the new settlement. A memorandum from the Audit Office, Sydney, dated the 31st of March, 1848, sets forth in detail the cost of the enterprise. Reader's note, memorandum begins. North Australia. Statement of expenses incurred for the settlement of North Australia, as far as the same can be ascertained from the accounts at present in the Audit Office, viz. from December the 1st, 1846, to October the 31st, 1847, prepared pursuant to Treasury Letter of February 1848. Pay for the Superintendent and of the Civil and Medical Establishments. £2,422.18 shillings and a penny. Allowance to civil and medical officers, £40, 1 shilling, 10 pence. Expenses of surveying and settlement, £900. Purchase of and fitting up the steamer Kangaroo, and wages of the crew, hire of the Lord Auckland, the Thomas Lowry, and the Sea Nymph, to carry out the expedition to North Australia and back to New South Wales, and other expenses of transport, £8,422, 8 shillings and fourpence. Pay of mechanics and boatmen, purchase of building materials, furniture for government house, water casks, seeds, stationery, and other contingent expenses, £1,184, 8 shillings and sixpence. Provisions, forage, fuel, and light for the use of the settlement and of the vessels conveying the expedition, £1,546, 15 shillings and fourpence. Pay of commissariat officers. Four hundred and ninety one pounds three shillings and sixpence. Pay of temporary clerks, issuers, and other subordinate persons of the commissariat two hundred and fifty nine pounds two shillings and sixpence. Commissariat contingencies five pounds and sixpence. Lodging allowance to military and commissariat officers one hundred and thirty pounds seven shillings and sevenpence. Total fifteen thousand four hundred and two pounds six shillings and twopence. Writing on the 30th of September, 1847, 
Sir Charles Fitzroy deeply lamented that his proceedings in connection with the settlement of North Australia had met with the disapproval of the Secretary of State. He then proceeded to shift the responsibility onto the shoulders of Mr Gladstone. Quote, I trust I may be permitted to point out to your Lordship that the necessity for taking immediate steps for the formation of a settlement for the reception of the exiles was strongly urged upon me by your Lordship's predecessor before I left England, and that Colonel Barney, on his arrival in this colony, reported that ships having these people on board might be expected to arrive at Sydney early in January. If, therefore, I had acceded to Colonel Barney's suggestion of delay, I should have incurred the responsibility of detaining the exiles in Sydney, a measure which, for many reasons, appeared to me to be extremely undesirable. End quote. Sir Charles added that he was by no means satisfied with the first cursory examination that Colonel Barney had made of the coast and country in the vicinity of Port Curtis. Further exploration might have, indeed, had since, demonstrated the existence of an adequate supply of water not far from the coast. Colonel Barney had reported most favourably of the advantages possessed by Port Curtis as a harbour, and the safety of the vessels employed in the expedition was therefore assured, while a closer search for permanent water was being made. Information had reached Sir Charles Fitzroy from persons acquainted with the locality, which had induced him to believe that the absence of water at the time of Colonel Barney's first visit was entirely accidental. Abundant rains had since shown the correctness of this information. Sir Charles concluded by assuring Earl Grey that the country around Port Curtis had been pronounced by every person who had returned from there to Sydney to be well adapted for settlement and adequately supplied with water, whilst the harbour was superior to any other along the coast, with the solitary exception of Port Jackson. Many persons had already left Sydney to settle at Port Curtis as private speculators, and numerous unauthorised squatting stations had sprung up to the northward of the 26th parallel. Parties of squatters were then travelling with their flocks and herds to occupy the rich pastures at the back of Port Curtis. He therefore asked Lord Grey to grant him the necessary authority to advantageously open up the Port Curtis district by free settlement in due and regular form, and under the circumstances to relieve him from the censure of having acted inadvisedly or without due consideration in the matter. The Sydney Morning Herald came out with a strongly written leading article in defence of Sir Charles Fitzroy and in condemnation of Earl Grey for his injustice, his harshness, and his exhibition of, quote, a spirit of discourtesy and snappishness altogether uncalled for and inexcusable, end quote. The project for establishing the new colony of North Australia had cost the inhabitants of New South Wales considerable anxiety and no small agitation. It had seduced an influential section of the legislature into the grievous error of consenting to the degradation of their country, and it had roused nearly the entire population to a vehement resistance of the measures by which that degradation was to have been inflicted. And now, it was proclaimed on official authority that this same experiment had cost the good taxpayers of old England the sum of £15,000, a sum with which 1,500 starving Britons might have been rescued from destitution and settled in the Australian land of plenty. This ministerial whim, having been found so costly, was now disowned by its ministerial parents. Ministerial shoulders, unwilling to bear the burden of their own responsibility, would fain transfer it to the shoulders of Sir Charles Fitzroy. His faithful execution of the orders he had received personally from Mr Gladstone on the eve of his departure from London had been rewarded by Mr Gladstone's successor with disapproval and censure from the circumstance of his having been in London 
while the North Australian scheme was being moulded and fashioned by the authorities of Downing Street, Sir Charles had become thoroughly informed as to the views and wishes of Her Majesty's Government with regard to it. His personal interviews with Mr Gladstone and other members of the Cabinet had given him a clearer insight into the policy of ministers with respect to this grand penal experiment than could have been afforded by the most voluminous dispatches. Sir Charles had come out to Sydney perfectly instructed as to the course of duty he had to pursue, and he pursued it with a zeal and intelligence which, had Mr Gladstone remained in office, would have encountered neither the dark frowns of censure nor the cold looks of disapproval. Mr Gladstone, as an enlightened and conscientious statesman, would not have shrunk from the weight of his own proper responsibility. Still less would he have meanly sought to cast it upon the officer who had obeyed his instructions. Mr Gladstone appears to have had but one parliamentary opportunity of explaining and defending his action in connection with the establishment of North Australia. On the 8th of March, 1849, an important debate on the transportation system was initiated in the House of Commons by Viscount Marn, member for Hartford. Mr Gladstone was amongst the speakers, and several references were made to his projected penal colony in North Australia. Lord Marne charged Earl Grey, Secretary of State for the Colonies, with having changed his views on transportation no less than five times in the short space of twenty months. As a result of the cessation of transportation to New South Wales in 1840, the convicts were concentrated in Van Diemen's Land to an extent that made that colony a loathsome sink of pestilence and infection. The complaints of the colonists reached England early in the spring of 1846. Mr Gladstone was then Colonial Secretary, and in conjunction with Sir James Graham, the Home Secretary, came to the conclusion that it was necessary to suspend the tide of transportation to Van Diemen's Land for two years. Transportation was thus checked, but Mr Gladstone accompanied this check by another measure. Lord Stanley had some time before sanctioned the establishment of an additional colony in North Australia for the reception of convicts, and Mr Gladstone made preparations for carrying out this plan. But on the 15th of November, Earl Grey wrote to Sir Charles Fitzroy, and by one stroke of his pen arrested the establishment of the new colony of North Australia. And that was not the only false step the noble Earl had made at the time. Lord Mayen then proceeded to discuss in detail the various changes and contradictions that had characterised Earl Grey's proceedings in the matter of transportation. Towards the close of his speech, Lord Mayen strongly urged that the colony of North Australia should be re-established on the lines laid down by Mr Gladstone. He was convinced that great advantage would accrue from constituting the convicts the pioneers of free immigration in that region. In the petition from Van Diemen's Land of the previous year, the abandonment of Mr Gladstone's North Australian project was one of the grounds of complaint. Sir George Grey, as the spokesman of the government, delivered a lengthy speech in reply. Lord Mann, he said, had suggested that they should recur to the proposed penal settlement of North Australia. He doubted whether the noble lord had read the papers which had been published with regard to that settlement, and which showed the impolicy of adopting any such course. The result of such a step would be to create a colony exclusively of criminals, with scarcely any hopes of future amelioration or improvement. Exiles from Pentonville Prison were the first to be sent there. The success of the system of sending exiles from Pentonville to the colonies had hitherto depended on their immediate dispersion, by which means they were blended with the population generally, and thus ultimately lost as a distinct class. Now the plan for North Australia was that it should be peopled by exiles and emancipists from Van Diemen's Land, who were to be induced to keep together by grants of land being given to them. All he could say was that he saw nothing but doubt and hesitation in the dispatches of Mr Gladstone on the subject of North Australia, 
and subsequent consideration had only convinced him that the prosecution of such a scheme of colonisation would have involved enormous expense, and that the evils of an unmixed criminal population to be produced by it would be equal to any that existed under the previous system. Mr. Gladstone, who rose towards the close of the debate, entered at some length into the working of the probation system in Van Diemen's Land, and animadverted on what he called the great precipitancy in the conduct of Earl Grey with respect to transportation. He thought the noble Earl would always do well to keep in view the immense importance of extending as far as possible the area in which transportation took place. In fact, he was sorry to say that in this department, as in many others of colonial policy, it must be admitted that they had degenerated from the wisdom of their ancestors. In former times, the principles on which transportation could be advantageously conducted were better understood than at the present day. The states of the American Union received convicts, but in numbers so small that they were easily absorbed into the rest of the population, and the evils which might arise to the community were reduced within the smallest possible limits. At the present day, less caution was exercised. Difficulties of a political character had been occasioned, and the very name of transportation had been brought into bad odour with the colonies. It was mainly from the difficulties which had thus been created that he felt strongly inclined to direct the attention of the House to the colony of North Australia. He felt the difficulties which now surrounded the subject, difficulties occasioned by the evil of compressing the convicts within a small space, and by the ill odour into which transportation had fallen with the Australian colonies, but he hoped that with the opening of a new door, transportation was not to be discontinued. It was his hope that North Australia would not be made a permanent penal colony, but that one or two cargoes of exiles from Pentonville should be sent there as pioneers and not to Van Diemen's Land, for in the latter colony so plentiful was labour, as compared with the demand, and so great the number of emancipated convicts it supported, that North Australia had been founded partially as a relief to Van Diemen's Land. He admitted that the whole question was surrounded by great difficulties, but he hoped that Her Majesty's Government would always take for their cardinal principle the importance of having as extensive an area as possible for the location of the convicts, for if they were to continue the practice of sending convicts by thousands to one penal colony, until it was drenched with iniquity, the very worst consequences would certainly ensue. On the 7th of April, the steamer Kangaroo left Sydney for Port Curtis, with Earl Grey's dispatches, transmitted by Sir Charles Fitzroy to Colonel Barney, ordering the abandonment of the Gladstone colony. How the news was received by the pioneers of North Australia is described in a letter dated the 18th of April. Quote, we have been anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Kangaroo, which made its welcome appearance here on the 15th inst bringing the joyful intelligence that the colony was not to be proceeded with, and that we were all to return to Sydney. When first seen in the distance, the news spread like wildfire through our camp, and every one was on the tiptoe of anxiety and hope to learn the nature of her dispatches. Many and various were the conjectures afloat, one that the colony was to be abandoned, another that it was to go on, third that the establishment was to be reduced and remain in abeyance until Parliament decided the question, but by far the greater number ardently hoped for the first. We were for a time in a state of tantalising suspense, but after about three hours, a boat was seen approaching, and our hearts were soon warmed with the news that we were again to be restored to our homes. I, for one, had made up my mind to leave by the first opportunity, but there were many whose circumstances would not admit of this, and to them in particular the news came like honey drops from heaven. Some few indeed who dreamed bright dreams of future glory, might be seen mopish and melancholy at being thus so suddenly deprived of their short-lived honours. 
but they were lost, annihilated, amidst the general gladness that was diffused around. It will not be wondered at that we were thus rejoiced, when it is considered that for twelve weeks we had been living on soldiers' rations, some of which were so bad that they were altogether unfit for consumption, and that during that long period in wet and dry weather we have had no covering for our heads but canvas tents, which were totally inefficient to protect us from either heat, cold, or rain, and again we have had no water to depend upon but surface water, procured from the drainage of the ground. This is now becoming very scarce, as we have had no rain for upwards of a month. I feel assured that, with the heavy dews which wet our bedclothes through the canvas, together with our salt rations and bad water, illness would soon have made its appearance amongst us, and I venture to prophesy that, unless we have very fine weather indeed, those of us who may have to remain until a second ship is sent from Sydney will feel the effects of wintering under our present circumstances. It is only fair to state that His Honour, the Superintendent, and his worthy and much-respected family have participated in all our miseries, Mrs. Barney having remained amongst us up to the fourth inst, when in consequence of illness, induced, I believe, by the heavy morning dews, she and her daughters removed on board the Thomas Lowry. End quote. The Thomas Lowry returned to Sydney on the ninth of May with 67 of the North Australian settlers, including Mrs. Barney and her daughters, Mr. and Mrs. Billiard, and Lieutenant de Winton, in command of 31 of the rank and file of the 99th Regiment. One of the officials of the short-lived colony lost no time in proclaiming his belief in the suppressed settlement. Quote, Notwithstanding that the present ministry have come to the determination of abandoning North Australia, I cannot, he wrote, see any obstacle to prevent private speculators from taking up that country. Quote. Then he added a prophecy that has since been amply verified by the event. Quote, Many years will not elapse before we shall hear of a flourishing colony around the now abandoned Port Curtis. End quote. He declared the climate to be exceedingly good, as was proved by the fact that the first settlers, although exposed to inevitable hardships and privations, continued in perfect health. The heat, although apparently great, was really not so oppressive as in Sydney, being tempered by the constant sea breezes blowing. Few or no storms or sudden changes were experienced. The harbour was the second best that Australia could boast, with deep water sufficient for the largest ship afloat for nine or ten miles, and backed by a magnificent range of mountains. Down to the water's edge there was an abundance of rich grasses, and there could be no possible doubt that the surrounding country was well adapted for grazing purposes. End of chapter 5 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia